Amen. This morning, we continue our sermon series through the, the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Luke chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, uh, the scripture passage should be printed in your bulletin uh, this morning, so you can take a look there. It's a rather lengthy passage. It's 14 verses. It describes the ministry of John the Baptist. I had a seminary professor on preaching that said, you're only supposed to preach what's in the, in the, in the passage, but you're supposed to preach how the passage uh, communicates the tone of the message. Well, I'm excited because John the Baptist somewhat preaches angry. I get to preach a little angry this morning. Maybe, maybe not. Luke chapter 3, hear God's word this morning. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit come today and open our eyes to see clearly. For those that are afflicted this morning, may you comfort us. And for those of us that have grown way too comfortable and complacent in relationship to you, afflict our souls this morning with genuine conviction. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a, a zookeeper that was taking care of a zoo that was in a financial pinch. 
The main drawing card to their zoo was a gorilla. The gorilla died. Well, the zookeeper knew that he could not afford to get another gorilla, so he decided to spend what little money he had on a gorilla suit. But the money that he spent on the gorilla suit meant that he had to let some people go. And there was one gentleman that was begging for him to keep his job, and the zookeeper said, okay, but here's what I need you to do. I need you to put on this gorilla suit and get in the cage every day. Well, the guy was so just glad to have a job that he gladly put on the gorilla suit and he kind of got into it. He learned how to kind of make these sounds and then he learned how to to eat bananas even with the gorilla suit on. And suddenly he began to really get into it and he would shake the cage and he would grab onto the cage. He would put his feet up on the cage and suddenly he became so convincing that people began coming to see the new gorilla at the zoo. Local newspapers would come and they would take pictures of the new gorilla. Local news broadcasters would come and talk and brag about the new gorilla experience at the zoo. And the zoo was doing great. Until one day, when the guy dressed in the gorilla costume got so carried away that he was doing his flips, he flipped over and landed in the tiger cage. At that moment, the guy said, "Uh uh-oh. I'm in way over my head. And he thought, well, if I scream for help, I'm going to blow my cover and I'll lose my job. So he decided that he would continue playing the part. So he kind of strutted around the tiger cage and went, hoo, hoo, hoo. Well, at that point, the tiger noticed him and began to growl. He thought, well, I, I can't scream now. So he got into it anymore. Hoo, 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 hoo. And at that point, the tiger began running towards him just as fast as he could on all fours. At that point, the gorilla turned and ran towards the other side of the cage. And right as the tiger was breathing on the back of his neck, the gorilla screamed out, help, help. And at that point, the guy dressed in the gorilla costume heard the tiger whisper, shut up, man, or you're going to get us both fired. (laughs) There are a lot of people in the world today pretending. They are pretending to be someone or something they are not. We can waste a lot of time, we can waste a lot of energy pretending to be someone or something that we're not. We can live in constant fear and constant panic that we're going to be caught, found out by those around us. Who are you pretending to be? What are you pretending to be? What's most scary, there are a lot of people walking around Bartow, Florida, pretending to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there might be some people that even call Bartow ARP Church their home, that walk in here regularly pretending. Pretending to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This passage is all about getting us prepared to meet Jesus. 
Because when Jesus returns, I don't want to get caught pretending. I don't want to be caught pretending to be someone I'm not. Rather, I want to be prepared to meet Jesus. Are you? Are you prepared? I don't want you to answer that question hastily and say, well, of course I know I'm prepared. This passage provides for us this morning two indicators, two signs that we need to examine this morning and examine our life and our lives in light of these indicators and see, are we really ready to meet Jesus? The first indicator that you're really ready to meet Jesus is repentance. Is your life characterized by repentance? J.C. Ryle says this, that saved souls are always penitent souls. I mean, saved souls are always repentant souls. That's true not only when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but that's true throughout the course of your whole walk with Christ. When we repent, it means to turn, that we go from going our own way, that we turn to God's way and decide that we're going to live his way. The first indicator that you're ready to meet Jesus today is that your life is characterized by repentance. Are you repentant? What happens here, the first, passage, the first couple verses of this passage is that Luke begins to dial in the date of John the Baptist's ministry. So there are seven names of leaders that are indicated in verses 1 through 2. Five of them are Roman rulers. Two of them are Jewish high priests. And what Luke is doing is he's dialing in the date for, G, for John the Baptist's ministry. Every scholar agrees that it's, it occurred some, this passage occurred somewhere between A.D. 27, 29. For those of you that, that wonder if the Christian faith is correct, notice that this is a book of history. They're naming names that are odd, to, are odd to pronounce. And if you don't know how to pronounce them, just fake it. That's what I do. But it's pointing to real history so that we might know as Christians that this Bible is not a book of fables or myths, but it's a book of history, true stories that have redemptive significance for our lives. And so as Luke dials in the date for John the Baptist's ministry, he highlights in verse 3 what the nature of his ministry was. It says, verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, we just baptized Dawson. I told Dawson, hey, Dawson, this water is not going to make you saved. This water is a symbol of what God's already done in your life. What was true for Dawson today was also true for those to whom heard John the Baptist preach in the first century. The baptism did not save the people from their sins, but rather it was an outward symbol of the work that God had already done in their lives. That they had already admitted the fact that they knew that they were a sinner, that they needed, they needed to be saved from the penalty of their sin, and so they repented to God of their sin. And then John the Baptist had them baptized in a similar way that Dawson was baptized today with water, water either poured over him or he was immersed, whichever way you want to debate. And that baptism was a sign, a symbol 
of the work that God had done in their lives. That's the first indicator of a person that's ready to meet Jesus. They're repentant. What are you doing today that you know is wrong? And you need to change course. If there's something in your life today that you know is wrong, but you don't care to give it up, then you should be afraid. Charles Spurgeon says this, that a Christian should never put off repenting, for I fear that he will never stop sinning this side of heaven. Friend, one of the signs that you're ready to meet Jesus is knowing that you've repented when you first came to faith in Christ, but that your life is characterized by repentance. How many of you like to turn on the oldies? and listen to a golden oldie song. Do you like doing that? I do. That's exactly what happens in verses 4 through 6 in this passage. Luke turns on a golden oldie of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. It's a passage that in its original context described what happened to God's people as they endured the exile and as God prepared a way for them to leave exile and go back to the promised land. But now this cover tune is played with a nice little twist in verses 4 through 6. As Luke cranks up the tune of this cover tune, it's twisted and turned in a good way, in an appropriate way, to be applied to the ministry of John the Baptist. What's its intention? It provides for us a description of what's happened in John the Baptist's ministry, but also provides for us metaphors of what repentance looks like in our lives. Let's take a look at what it says. As it, verse 4, is, it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What happened in the first century is whenever a king came to a town or a city, the people would make preparations for the king so that the king would not be hindered in his pathway to the city. So if there were potholes in the road, they would fill them and make them flush and level. If there were obstacles, then they would remove them. They would take the big rocks out of the way. They would try to pave the road in some way, shape, or form, even in the first century. The Roman government was known for their ability to make wonderful roads and highways. And then if it was a crooked path, they would do their best to try to make it straight so that the king would have a quick, easy path to the place. It's exactly what this passage is picking up on, is that what God wants to do in our hearts is prepare our hearts like that roadway so that we're ready to meet Jesus. And so for those of us that have gaping holes in our lives and we're trying to fill it with stuff and trying to fill it with things, the Holy Spirit comes to you today and says, stop it. Stop trying to fill the void in your life with things and people as we're going to hear about tonight at youth group, for those of you that, 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 are, that are, are students or, or single, quit trying to fill your life with a, with a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or a spouse. Only Jesus can fill that void in your life. And for others of us, the obstacle in our, in our relationship to Jesus Christ is that we have 
We have barriers of pride and arrogance that need to be shaved and sanded in our lives. That other of us, we have crooked ways, deceitful ways that need to be straightened. That's exactly what John the Baptist preaches. And so he says in verse 7, You brood of vipers. Just so we're clear, that's not, he's not paying them a compliment. Okay? That's not some weird first century pickup line. What's he saying? He's preaching angry. He's saying you're a bunch of, bunch of venomous snakes. That your, your life is characterized by such repulsive character that you're poisonous and you, you're able to to ruin those around you with your false religiosity. So for those of you that may not be walking with Christ today, and you look at this, this church, and you say, you know, Tanner, you know what turns me off the Christian faith is hypocrites. People that pretend to be something that they're not. They're like that guy in the gorilla costume or the tiger costume, parading around, pretending to be some great follower of Jesus, but I know their life, and it repulses me. Same is true with God. God cannot stand hypocrisy either. And so I would encourage you that those of you that, that are frustrated with Christians, frustrated with the church because you see the hypocrite church, you and the Bible are on the same page. For those of us that are pretending to be someone that we're not, the call to us this morning is to repent. To repent of our hypocrisy. Quit pretending to be someone that you're not. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous, famous Presbyterian minister. He tells the story of one day after having supper with his family and his children, he made his way back to his study in his home, and the children followed him. As he sat there to, to finish reading the scripture passage for the next morning and pray, he divvied up the responsibilities of chores to all of the children. And he told them exactly what to do and how they needed to get it done before they got ready to go to bed that night. Well, one of his children stuck around and said, but, Daddy. He listened to her and he said, okay, what, sweetie? And she said, but, Daddy. Soon, Mrs. Barnhouse overheard the conversation. She made her way to Dr. Barnhouse's study and she said, what's going on here? And Dr. Barnhouse said this. He said, honey, here's the problem. Our child knows what I'm, I've told her to do, but she doesn't want to do it. And she thinks if she argues with me long enough, that eventually I will change my mind. He said, but what needs to happen is she needs to change her attitude, and she needs to change her ways. Is that a picture of you this morning? With your Heavenly Father? I fear that's the relationship many of us have with God in our prayer life. That's the relationship we have with God every day. That we think if I just beg him 
are wine enough, he's going to change his ways to fit my ways. And what we need is not negotiation with God, but what we need is submission to our Savior. What we need is to be repentant. To change the direction of going our way, insisting on our way, insisting on God's way. Are you ready to meet Jesus? You are if your life is characterized by this submission and repentance. Because saved souls are always penitent souls. And we never put off repenting because in this life, we never put off sinning. That's the first indicator of a heart that's ready to meet Jesus is the sign of repentance in their life. The second sign is the sign of fruitfulness. The sign of fruitfulness. Look at verse 8. John the Baptist says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What is the second indicator of someone that's ready to meet Jesus? Not only that they've repented of their sin, but their life is now characterized by a pursuit of obedience to him. The idea of bearing fruit gives the idea of continuously seeking to obey God. William Hendrickson says this, that repentance, if it is to be genuine, must be accompanied by fruit bearing. J.C. Rawls says it this way, doing is the very life of repentance. What is John the Baptist saying? He's saying, okay, Christian, here's the target of your life now. If you've repented of your sin, you've changed your direction, you're trusting Christ, then your goal now is to do what he wants, how he wants it, why he wants it, whenever he wants it. Your target is obedience. And if you're pursuing that, then your life will bear fruit of repentance. And what if we don't? He says in verse 9 that there's a threat coming our way. The threat is this, that even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. This picture is a sign of judgment. That at the end of time, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be a judgment day, and that axe is at the root of our, the tree of our lives right now. And on Judgment Day, we will be chopped down. And if our, if our life is not consistent with God's word, if we're not truly trusting in Christ for our salvation, we'll be thrown into fire. The picture is hell. I know that's not a very popular subject this day and age, but it's a true message that we need to hear today. And I find it very interesting that in the midst of this discussion about bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, in verse 8, that John the Baptist throws in this little nugget. Do not begin to save yourselves. We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It amazes me, the longer I serve Jesus, the more conversations I have with people inside the church and outside the church, how confused people are. You ask people about their relationship with Jesus Christ, they say, absolutely, I'm going to heaven. I say, why? Well, my daddy did this. My mommy did that. 
My grandfather was this. How in the world? How in the world could you think that you're getting to heaven on the coattails of a relative? If that was all you needed, then why did God send Jesus? The indicator of someone who's ready to meet Jesus not only means that they repented of their sin, that they trusted in Christ, but their life is bearing fruit of repentance that they know each and every single day that their relationship with God is solidified not because of who they know, or to whom they belong on this earth, but because of the relationship with Jesus Christ. In verses 10 through 14, John the Baptist highlights the difference that salvation makes in our lives. There are three groups that he addresses here in verses 10 through 14. In the original language, the idea is that these people are continuously coming to John the Baptist, hearing him preach, coming to faith in Christ, they're continuously coming to him and they're asking him, what should we do now? And I'll summarize his teaching to all three of these groups in verses 10 through 14 with simply this. He tells them, love your neighbor. Just love them genuinely. He says in verses, in verse 11, for those that, that they say, what should we do? He says, well, if you've got two tunics, then share one with one that doesn't have a tunic. A tunic was kind of like an under, uh, undergarment shirt. Like right now, I have a shirt underneath my dress shirt for two reasons. One, to keep me warm when it's cold in here. And two, it's kind of disgusting to hold back the sweat from my dress shirt. Okay? We can debate which one I need more in Florida. But how excessive would it be if I had on two undershirts? You'd say, well, either you sweat a whole lot or you're just doing overkill. But what if I know that there's someone in the church that's freezing and they would benefit from the fact if I gave them one of my two undershirts that I'm wearing? That's the point that John the Baptist is making. That if you've repented of your sins and you're following Jesus Christ, then your life will be characterized by love and generosity and honesty. In verses 12 through 13, he talks to the tax collectors. The tax collectors were employed by the Roman government to go collect the tax from the people. But the problem was that the tax collectors always tacked on a little bit of what you call a shipping and handling charge. Yeah, you know about shipping and handling, don't you? Yeah, it's like that was like three times what the value of the item was, right? That's essentially what the tax collectors were doing as well. They were tacking on a shipping and handling charge. And so what does John the Baptist say to them? He says, only collect from the people what the government tells you to collect. Be honest. Be loving. Don't lie. Don't cheat. And then in verses, verse 14, he highlights the soldiers of the Roman government. The soldiers went around repeatedly in the first century, and they would basically bully the people to get uh, more than milk money out of them. They would bully the people to be able to, to, until eventually they made false accusations, and so they would be able to collect more money from these people, or particularly those that were slaves. And they would get not only money from the slaves, but then they would get money from the slave owners. What does John the Baptist say to them in verse 14? Be content with your wages. You're a government employee with wonderful benefits. Just be content with what God has given you. What's his point? 
If you're prepared to meet Jesus, then not only will you repent, but your life will bear fruit of the change. Years ago, Jennifer and I lived in Asheville, North Carolina. Nash, Ash, Asheville is kind of a neat little town. It's really granola and a lot of hippies that live there. And I was invited over to a, a kind of a cookout with several ministers in the area. A lot of guys wearing polo shirts and khakis. You know, that's kind of the Presbyterian uh, costume, right? Um, so a lot of Presbyterian ministers, we were sitting around the campfire, grilling burgers, having some cold drinks, and, and discussing theology and Bible and all kinds of deep theological truths. And there was this one guy in his 70s that had somewhat blonde but more gray hair that was down to his hips, and he was wearing a tie-dyed t-shirt. I remember thinking, where did this hippie come from? And so this hippie guy didn't say anything. He just listened to us talk for a long time. Eventually he said, gentlemen, do you mind if I share a story with you? We said, not at all. He said, once upon a time in Asheville, North Carolina, there was a farmer's market. And all the people liked to go out to the farmer's market and get the best produce, the best fruit that they could get. And there was a gentleman that ran this farmer's market, and there was one older guy that would come and annoy him to death every Saturday. Every Saturday morning, there was this one old guy that would come to the farmer's market. He was the first one to the farmer's market and the last one to leave. And every Saturday, he would debate everyone that came into the farmer's market about fertilizer. He would debate what type of fertilizer was the best fertilizer to use. He would debate what type of irrigation was the best irrigation to use. He would debate about when to plant and when to pick and what to plant and what to pick. And suddenly, after several years, the gentleman running the farmer's market got fed up with that old man coming to the farmer's market every Saturday. And he said, you know what? Shut up. I don't want to hear your mess anymore because you're not a farmer. The old man was offended and said, what do you mean I'm not a farmer? I know more about fertilizer than you do. I know more about irrigation than you do. I know more about produce and fruit than you. I know more about planting and picking. And the gentleman running the farmer's market said, yeah, but where's your fruit? You've been coming here for years claiming that you're a farmer, but I've yet to see one piece of fruit. Is that your story with Jesus today? You know a lot of facts about the Bible. You know a lot of traditions about the Bartow ARP church. But where's your fruit? What if we talk to your family? Would they say that they see the fruit of your walk with Christ? What about your friends? Do they know you as someone that's bearing fruit for Jesus? What about your coworkers? Your neighbors? Have they seen any, any fruit in your life of walking sincerely with Jesus Christ?
would they say that the, the fruit of your walk with Christ is rare? Or would they describe it as rotten? Brennan Manning says this, that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out these doors and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. When Jesus returns... I pray he doesn't find you pretending. Rather, I pray he finds you prepared to meet him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry. Every Sunday I acknowledge you with my lips and yet I walk out these doors and I deny you by my lifestyle. Please forgive me. Please change me. When I stray... May it not be far, may it not be long before I hear your voice calling me back to you. Lord, I want my life to bear fruit for you. And I want the fruit not to be rare or rotten. But I want it to be beautiful and bountiful for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.